0: So turn then back to Matthew's gospel, and we are entering the Passion Week. We're entering that final week of Jesus' life as we see Him on Palm Sunday enter into Jerusalem as King. And yet as He does so, He's entering in as a King that, yes, He's being received and exalted as the King of Israel, and yet at the same time we understand He is not the King that they expected. His ministry and the nature of His gospel word is different than what they were hoping for. And really, life is littered with unmet expectations. And the question then becomes, well, how do you handle these? How do you do these? What are are you going to do about that? I mean, think in particular in just one avenue of our economy, you go on Amazon. As you're researching some product you're going to buy, the first thing I usually do after I find the product that I might want, I think about, well, where did this come from? Let me look at the ratings, and let me see if this thing will actually hold together beyond the two minutes, but it usually takes when I open something that was for a great deal from Amazon. I mean, Amazon is littered with frustrated customers who give all kinds of one-star reviews for some product that didn't last or didn't meet their expectations. You see things I do routinely that say things... Things like this. The thing busted in less than an hour. My grandson opened it, and it didn't last Christmas Day. It came in the box broken. The piece was missing. It arrived late. It came damaged. It didn't do what it said. I want a return. I want a refund. I feel cheated. am never going to buy that product again. What a waste. It's not what I expected. One star. I would give negative stars if I could. Have you seen this? And admittedly, that is frustrating. When they are they lying about the product that they know it won't last and yet they sell it anyway? Yeah, what's going on here? And so it's frustrating. You're out of some hard earned money and maybe you learn a lesson, right? You, you know, you need to check more of the reviews or check the recent reviews uh, next time before you do that again. So, yes, there's time lost and maybe there's some lost money. You couldn't get a refund and that results in frustration, but we can move on. We do move on. We have to. I mean, life is comprised of a whole lot of unmet expectations. We expect in some ways to be disappointed. But when this happens with God, things suddenly get far more serious. They get serious real quick when we have unmet expectations. See, our very faith in God is built upon how faithful we think He is, how worthy He is of our trust, how reliable He is to come through on what He has promised. And so when our expectations from God continue to go unmet, we don't merely become frustrated, but we start to despair. Our faith starts to crack, and for some, it feels like it's all about to crumble and fall away. And so the question is, when that's happening, how do we deal with that? Where's the solution? Where do we go? How are we supposed to handle that for our own faith, let alone for others, brothers and sisters in the, in the church, that we might be strengthened in faith and walk after Him? Unmet expectations can rattle our faith and crack it and keep, make it crumble. Well, how can we guard against that? How can we patch up the crack, so to speak? How can we strengthen our faith to keep it from cracking? Well, we're going to find in these three vignettes, so the very end of Matthew chapter 20 and into the first part of the triumphal entry, we're going to find these three episodes, and there we'll find three exhortations for us, how we can battle unbelief, three exhortations for how we can fight the fight of faith and deal with our cracking, dealing with unmet expectations. And the first is this, the first command that we find from the end of chapter 20 is this, See that his help comes to the needy. This is how we fight for faith. You need to recognize the character of your Christ. His help comes to those who know and cry out and are in desperate need. That's who he's drawn to, that's who he meets in the moment. The theme that we find routinely, and we've already referenced it through the whole triumphal entry, let alone the ministry of Jesus and what we call his Passion Week, the last week of his earthly life, is unmet expectations. People expect one thing, they get another. We find continual discrepancy between the concerns of the king, what he's about, why he's here, what he's thinking, versus what the crowds think, and what the crowds want from him, and what they think a Savior or Messiah should really be. They expect one thing, Jesus does another, and that can be frustrating, that can crack your faith, but Jesus is calling us in a text like this, and he's saying, listen, you need to trust me. You need to trust me more than you trust you and your assessment of these things because his plan and his approach, maybe you don't see it, but it's actually better than whatever you were expecting. Now, to see this, we ended last time with that glorious declaration in verse 28 of chapter 20 about the actual mission of this king, that he didn't come to get praise, he didn't come to be served, he had all that in heaven. He came down to earth on a mission to serve, and namely to give over his very life as a ransom, to buy back a people for God. And again, this turns everything and our expectations upside down. That's what we've been seeing in this last bit of Matthew's gospel. Christ and His kingdom turn everything upside down. It's not what you expect. The last become first. The first become last. Those who become great are those who became servants. Kings in His kingdom become those who serve, who even give up their own life. And this upsetting of assumptions and values continues as we walk right through this gospel as we continue now and approach Jerusalem with King Jesus. Again, the crowds don't see it, they don't understand, they don't see His kingdom aright, and their blindness shows once more as they are on the brink of coming into Jerusalem. So let's pick it up though in verse 29 of chapter 20. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed Him. So this is the home stretch on the journey into Jerusalem. This is the last major stop before they're going to head into the capital city. Where surely the Messiah would set up his kingdom and his reign. But as they're on their way, I mean, Jesus here, he's on a mission to go to Jerusalem. He's the most important person, he's on the most important mission. And yet, his mission is interrupted by the needy crying out for him. Verse 30. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And instantly, you get an insight. These blind men, of course, they cannot see physically very well, but they have a keen spiritual sight. They recognize immediately and have hope who this Jesus actually is, and it's in their words, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David was a messianic title. This was the promised king to come. They call him the son of David because of the promise given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You remember this? The Lord had promised to King David that one day that someone, a descendant of his loins, to come from his family line, whether it's his son or his grandson or great-great-grandson or however many greats you need to add, but somebody would come through a descendant of his line He would come and be king, and He wouldn't only be king, but He would be an eternal king who would reign forever, and that means His kingdom would be unmatched. No one would oppose it. He would be the ultimate deliverer and rescuer and restorer of worship of God on earth with God's people. The blind men can see this even if the crowds question it. Now, we'll see the crowds as we we go through Matthew's gospel. The crowds will, at times, they will praise Jesus. They'll even praise Him as the Messiah. And yet, peek ahead, journey with me to verse 10 and 11 of chapter 21. Jesus now has entered into the city. They've been proclaiming, Hosanna to the Son of David. Yes, you're the Messiah. And yet, as the whole city is just stirred up, look at verse 10. And when he'd entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? They still have all kinds of questions. And the crowds then said, verse 11, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And, he's, and still there's the ambiguity. Is he the prophet, the, the Mosaic-like prophet who's going to reign, or is he only a prophet? Who is this? They still wonder. Well, the blind men They see him with crystal clarity. You are the son of David. Our only hope is what they see. But the crowds, they'll have nothing of this. So going back now to chapter 20, verse 31, they'll have nothing of these blind men getting in the way. The crowd, verse 31, rebuked them, telling the blind men to be silent. Shh, quiet. Your cries are so annoying, right? Christ doesn't have time for you. You need to know your place. Your place is to be a beggar by the roadside. We got important things to go do. Jesus is about to go take over the Romans in Jerusalem. He doesn't have time for you, He doesn't have time for beggars and babies. You're slowing us up, you're getting in the way. And we've seen Jesus' followers in the past respond just this way. I alluded to it a moment ago, right? Remember, as people were bringing children for Jesus, that he would lay his hands on them and bless them. And what did the closest disciples, followers of Jesus do? They went and rebuked the parents and grandparents, get those kids out of here. Jesus doesn't have time for you. And when you're thinking in the worldly mindset, if you're thinking how this this world and the nations and the kingdoms operate, this only makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, the movers and shakers in our world they don't operate and give attention to beggars and babies. No, when, you, when you're starting a revolution, who do you need? You don't need beggars. You need men of strength. You need people of influence. You need big donors. You need resourceful, connected individuals. That, that's the kind of people Jesus needs that are going to need to accompany him as he heads into Jerusalem to tell the Romans who's boss. That's what Jesus is looking for, right? Or is it? And again, Expectations collide with Jesus' reality. And what have we discovered about our Lord? But that every time the needier push away, it seems, that's precisely when our Lord stops and intercedes. As if to say, You've missed it. You've missed it again. Because you've missed them. See, I came precisely for them. That's why I'm here. For them, they're so desperate. They call out to me. They see that they need me most. And it's true. I mean, the example of these blind men is to be commended. They're being rebuked. They're, they're being told to be silent. But what do they do? They just cry out all the more because they know they have no hope outside of Christ. Verse 31 in full. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. You can't, you can't shut these guys up. And their desperate cries are not ignored with a Christ like ours. Verse 32, And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? Matthew paints it as if their, their desperate calls halt Jesus right in his tracks to then turn and call them. And, and though it seems obvious what they want, what they need, they want to see, he has them voice their request. He wants to hear it come from their own mouths. He wants them to expressly say what they trust he can do. And they tell him, we want to see. And then here's Jesus' response to that simple trust. He responds with compassion. Look at verse 34. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and they immediately recovered their sight and followed him. And this exposes again, his followers, for doing and thinking, assuming and expecting the wrong thing, right? They're trying to silence the cries of the needy, and then Jesus comes and silences the rebukers. And he calls the needy forward and shows them compassion. You've missed it, guys. And yet, this shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't have surprised them. What have we seen to be the character of Jesus as we walk through Matthew's gospel, right? Right? I mean, what did you expect from him for yourself? Will Christ ignore your needy Christ for him? He will not. That's not who he is. He's overflowing with compassion. We're reminded he's calling the needy to him. If you're weighed down, if you're, if you're oppressed, I'm, I'm the one for you. I'm gentle and lowly. Take up my yoke. I am the one here to meet your needs and of the greatest needs of all. You're, you labor and are heavy laden. I'm the one who has the answer. The one that see their need and calls upon him are the one that get the compassion. They get the mercy. And really it is. It's our neediness, our desperation that inclines him to us. Not our self-reliance. Not our assumption, well, I'll get better. I'll prove it to you. That's not who Jesus is drawn to and inclined to. He invites those who are desperate and needy to come and to come right away. Because compare this. Compare this request we have here at the end of the chapter to the one we saw last week. Remember? We had the two brothers with their mom, and what were they asking? They were asking for positions of authority, and they were even being manipulative about it. Jesus, in that sense, doesn't give them what they ask for. But these blind men got the very compassion they needed. Now, does this mean that Jesus will then answer us right away as soon as we call? Answer with compassion? No. Again, because in His perfect wisdom, He answers at the perfect time. And we've seen that throughout the Gospels. And what that means is there's a time when you have to keep crying out. You have to wait on Him. Trust Him even as you cry out and wait. And we've seen that throughout this gospel. We see it with the blind men. I mean, they're told to be quiet and they keep crying out to him. I don't think when Jesus stops and calls that that was the first time that he had heard their voices. Or if you go back to chapter 9, we had a very similar scenario. You have these blind men that are following Jesus all around. And as they follow him, they keep crying out pretty much the same thing. Have mercy on us, son of David. And it says, when he entered the house, the blind men came to him. So, so they've been like protesting outside his house, crying out to him. Why didn't Jesus go right away? I mean, he eventually heals them. Why did he make them wait? Or think of the Old Testament. What do the psalmist so routinely say? How long, O oh Lord? Why do we have to keep waiting? Or I love that story in John's Gospel with Lazarus. Lazarus, who was a beloved friend of Jesus. Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick. And so what does Jesus, the ultimate physician, immediately do? He waits two days. That's what he does. It seems like he lingers to be sure that Lazarus then dies. Now, what is this about? Well, of course, Jesus knows he has the power of life, that he's going to raise him from the dead. But that waiting, that delay, what did it do? It challenged the faith of many. And it caused great grief, even grief to our Lord as He shows up at the tomb and He Himself weeps. But yet it all was according to plan. That delay was for the perfect glory of God by His perfect accounting of time. And so the course, whatever the midst of the test or trouble that we are enduring, we don't know the timetable. That's not something we are privy to. But what do we know? We know He's good. We know He's compassionate. We know he's worth waiting for. So that whatever the trouble is, perhaps the delay, perhaps he intentionally is even delaying it to show us something, to show us how needy we really are, more than we knew. And that's a hard place, admittedly, but it's not a bad one. What does it make you do? It makes you, like these blind men, cry out all the more, depend all the more. It tests your faith that then as he carries you through, it strengthens and galvanizes and bolsters your faith. So keep calling upon Him. Don't turn from Him. There's no hope without Him. Compassion will come. That's the character of our Christ. We can be sure of that. We can expect that. But we can't move on from Him. See His mercy and compassion. It will come. Trust Him in it. The next command that we use here to battle unbelief is this. You've got to know that His Word proves true know that His Word will prove true. It will never fail. And we see that happen in the triumphal entry in these first seven verses of Matthew 21. We see it as He fulfills to the jot and tittle the very specifics of prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. As chapter 21 opens, Jesus is making the clearest statement to date to tell everyone openly, He's the Messiah. He's the promised King. He's the anticipated Savior, the eternal King of Israel. And so in other words, the crowds are going to be right to praise Him. The crowds, as we see, they're going to be right to to bow to Him and say, you are our King. But the point that's going to come out through this whole Passion Week, this last week of Jesus' earthly life is this, He is the King even when He doesn't meet your expectations. Even when he isn't the king that you expected or wanted, he's still king. Because again, his kingdom, which seems upside down to us, it's going to confuse many. Many are going to want more. They're going to want more action. They're going to want more political involvement. They're going to want more things to happen now. And Jesus is saying, well, you said on the Messiah, you said on the Savior, I'm telling you, you got to trust me. Trust me when when my plans don't match yours. Because maybe, maybe, maybe your expectations were the problem and not my word. And in a way, that's what he tells us as he puts this whole prophecy together. It's this sign and encouragement and proof and vindication. I am the Messiah. You should trust me. But that means you trust me even when I do things that you weren't expecting. Even when your Savior lies dead in a tomb by the end of this week. He will always come through, even when it's ways you don't expect. And that's it. That's it as we come to this triumphal entry. It's the seal and proof that he indeed is the coming Messiah. This day, we call it Palm Sunday, it marks the last or the first day of his last week of his earthly life. He's going to die on Friday. And even here, though, And throughout this gospel, through this last week, you see, he remains at the helm. He's in total control. Nothing's catching him by surprise. He proposes and purposes to enter Jerusalem just this way. And he's doing it to to make a statement, to tell everybody, I am the Messiah. So let's see it. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. Saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. So, approaching Jerusalem, they came to Bethage on the Mount of Olives. And in effect, this area is like a suburb of Jerusalem. In other words, we're very close to Jerusalem proper right now. If I can make some analogy to the city of Richmond, if you were coming from the east, heading west into Richmond, it's like you're making a stop at St. John's Church right there in Church Hill. We are very close now, not even a mile out before you hit the Capitol Square. And that's true about the Mount of Olives. And to be clear, the Mount of Olives, don't think Rocky Mountain mountains, right? This is basically a really big hill. That's only right out of side of Jerusalem proper. And there, as you stand on the hill, you can see the Temple Mount. You can see the whole city proper. So they're right on the cusp of entering in. But the point is, Jesus doesn't have very far to go. And he's been journeying all day. Why is he getting these animals? Is it because he's tired? He can't handle the about mile or two-mile walk back to town? I don't think that's it at all. Yet yeah, he's being very intentional about inquiring these animals. So here's what he does. Again, in verse 2, he gives his disciples some instructions and he says, Immediately, you go find a donkey tied and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. Now, again, this goes contrary to what many of our expectations would be. Jerusalem is now occupied by the Romans, they are, in effect, the rulers of Jerusalem and now the king of the Jews is riding in to take control of Jerusalem? What, what kind of vehicle would you take with you? I, I would want a war horse, or why not a Humvee or a tank, right? At best, a limo with bulletproof glass. It's like he calls an Uber and gets a Corolla riding into town. What is this about? What is he doing? And if that wasn't odd enough, Let's look ahead to verse 3. We'll get to that in a moment. Verse 3 reads this way, And if anyone says anything to you, you shall just tell them the Lord needs them. And He's going to send them at once. Because that's a little odd, right? They're just going to wander into town. Oh, here's a couple donkeys on a post. Let's just untie those and take those away. You don't think anybody's going to ask about that? Well, Jesus accounts for that. Here's what you tell them. This isn't like grand theft donkey the Lord needs them. And that's what's astonishing here. Jesus is claiming his right to these donkeys that don't seem to be his. It's not like he bought them and owned them, and yet they very well are his because he is the Lord of all. And so he just, just tell them that the Lord needs them. And it's no Jedi mind trick or anything, but they understand what's going on. And they, the, those who see this, if the Lord needs them, take them. Now, there's been some question about what's exactly going on. Had Jesus set this up ahead of time? That is, he had told a friend privately, hey, set those donkeys out and we'll work this out when I get to town. Or, and I think this is more the case, does he just know because he is God where those donkeys will be? And as God and as Lord, he has rights to them and he takes them and uses them. This much is very clear. He is Lord, and if He needs those donkeys, He gets them. No matter what the earthly owner says, Jesus' authority trumps. Now, but that's a little bit beside the point. What are we really getting at here? Everything's going to Jesus' plan. This shows that He is Lord and God over everything else. He is working everything out to the particular detail. But what is his plan? What is he about? Why is he grabbing these donkeys? What is this for? Well, we learn in verses 4 and 5 what this is about. What is he doing? He is fulfilling the word of God. Look at verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. That's a quote from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, chapter nine, verse nine, and it's astonishing. Zechariah lived and ministered some five hundred years before Jesus even came to Earth, and yet he was able by divine revelation to predict in the precise way and manner that the Messiah was going to ride into Jerusalem. And it wasn't going to be on a war horse. It wasn't going to be with a sword in hand. It was going to be humble, riding a donkey. This then means he's coming in bringing peace, not war. This was an intentional, deliberate statement. He's not coming to pick a fight in that sense. You wonder if the Romans even notice him coming to town. He's not coming to make war. He comes humbly. And not only does he ride a donkey, which is quite humble, instead of a war horse, but he rides on a donkey's colt. That is, he's, he's riding on a, a juvenile. He's riding on an untamed ride. The other gospel writers know that this is a, a donkey that's never been ridden before. This would be a really crummy animal to be riding if you're going out to battle. What do you want when you go out to battle? You want a strong beast that won't get scared, that won't buck you, that'll be at your perfect control at the reins in your hand? It's in war. Your life depends on this animal. But that's not not why he's coming into Jerusalem. That's not the kind of war he's waging. Now, it's interesting to note, Matthew's gospel chronicles precisely just how exacting Jesus is as he fulfills this prediction. That is, the other gospel writers only focus on the donkey's cold the beast that Jesus actually rides into Jerusalem, they don't include this other detail that Jesus actually asks for two animals. Remember at the beginning of this chapter, He asks them not only to grab the colt or the foal, but grab the mare, grab the mother too. Now, why did Jesus do that? And why did Matthew take time to particularly note it? Because the other gospel writers don't bother to mention it. Well, because as you go back to Ma- or Zechariah's prophecy he mentions two animals by implication. He's saying Jesus will ride one, but by implication, there's two animals mentioned. When it reads, he's mounted on a donkey, that's one. And who's the donkey? He's the colt. He's the foal of a donkey. That's the second animal. You have the very words for the donkey and its mother. And Jesus is going to prove so specifically that this is exactly what he's going to do. He's requested, we'll bring both of those animals And the disciples execute this plan exactly. Look at verses 6 and 7 of Matthew 21 again. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and He sat on them. Now, is that to mean Jesus sat on both animals and rode both animals? No, it doesn't. Look at verse 7 again they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them, that's the animals, their cloaks, and he sat on them, that is, the cloaks. He only rode one animal. That's, a, that's what Zechariah predicted. In Hebrew parallelism, as it lists what, by references to animals, it's really just the one. It's the donkey's colt that he's mounted upon that he will ride. And that makes sense of what the other gospels mention. They only mention the one, the colt that he will ride. Well, then, again, why the two animals here? What was the point of this? Well, here's the point. As he's riding a donkey into town, and everybody's looking from some of them far away, how are they to know that that donkey was really a juvenile, untamed, unridden donkey? How would they ever know that just by looking at it? Here's precisely how they will know. They will see the mother right next to the baby. Having the mother with the foal, the foal that Jesus was riding, this was like the vindication, the seal to let everyone know that's the foal. Just as the Messiah was going to ride, this is Zechariah 9.9. See, the Jews, they were longing for the day when their Messiah would come and undo the Romans. They were very familiar with the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. They were waiting for anything, even a hint of, oh, this is the end. The redemption's here. There would be no mistaking to that Jewish audience when they saw Jesus on a baby donkey tied to its mother, Jesus saying he's the Messiah. They would know without a doubt what Jesus was telling them. They are picking up what Jesus is letting down. And that becomes evident because they suddenly start praising him and welcoming him into town. This is our coming king he's here. And we'll see that next in a moment. But of course, the fervor doesn't hold for long, does it? And why not? Only because Jesus proves to be nothing like the king they expected or that they really wanted. They wanted their king to come and crush the Romans, and yet he's going to be crushed. He's going to be mocked as a foe king hail the king of the Jews, they will say to him and beat him. He's not going to meet their expectations. And so what then do they conclude about Jesus? He must not have been king after all. He was a deluded visionary, maybe a madman. But to keep you from going there, that's what this event is all about. Jesus is saying to the crowds, "Get ready. Something's going to happen later this week, but you need to know what I'm telling you right now. I am the Messiah. Hold on before you turn your back on me. See that I'm fulfilling scripture to the very letter. To every jot and tittle, I'm bringing it to pass these ancient prophecies. I'm fulfilling it all right as the scripture predicted, though it's not as you as expected." And so what does this mean? You're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to trust me that I am still the king, that I am still in control, even when it doesn't look like it to you. And when your expectations are dashed, even personally, with whatever you're going through in your Christian life, as curious as it is, remember the donkey's. Remember the precision that Jesus is taking to fulfill every aspect of his word. Not one of it, a piece of it will drop. He will not drop you if you trust him. You will not be disappointed as you cast yourself on him. He's saying, trust me. I seal these promises with my blood. I vindicated it by my resurrected life. I will not break my word, he tells you. Trust me still, even when you can't make sense of it and in our disappointing days isn't that not a word we need to hear that's how we build back our faith but third we must realize this how do we battle against unbelief finally this realize your faith can be fickle we must trust him there's really nowhere else to go because the alternative to trust ourselves that's what's so fickle that's what's so dangerous Because our faith has no security, has no strength of itself. Our faith must be cast on Christ. And that shows itself. That comes to light now as we turn and look at verses 8 through 11. And we see now the crowds are welcoming and and hailing Jesus as their king. They're they're ushering ushering him into town. They're giving him the, the ancient red carpet welcome into town. Look at verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And other cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. They're paving the way. Jesus, this way. Come, come. We want you as our king. We're going to serve you. And they not only illustrated it by by putting down their cloaks and these branches, but but they're literally crying out all around him in praise. Again, verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him. So he's surrounded by shouting. Hosanna to this son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. These words come right from Psalm 118. These words, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were waiting for that coming king in Zechariah, and they're asking for God's blessing on him that Hosanna would happen. And what's Hosanna? It's a word of praise, but it's also an exclamation of, please save us in the Hebrew. Deliver us. Rescue us. May God bless you to be our king to deliver us from Rome. That's what we want. That's what we need. That's what we expect. Save us from our enemies. You are our Savior. Only, of course, how he's going to save them and ultimately what he came to save them from, they have yet to understand. It's not what they expect. Such that as He's eventually dying on the cross, to save them, mind you, as He's dying on the cross, they turn on Him and they mock Him and abandon Him. This one, they cried out, oh, save us, Lord Jesus. They're now going to turn and mock Him as no Savior at all. Because let's fast forward to Friday. So, So look with me. Turn over to Matthew 27. Let's fast forward to Friday and pick up the scene at the foot of the cross and ask the question where are the praises now? Where are the crowds now? They're gone. And the crowds that are mentioned by Matthew are calling for his blood. And it's true, it's been overplayed, I think, by some preachers, you know, just for the preaching point that, oh, you see the crowds praising Jesus on Sunday and then they want to kill him on Friday. all the precise people on Sunday were the very same ones on Friday. We're not given that kind of specifics that it was the very same crowds, but the thrust of it is the same, and no doubt that there were people in both camps. Indeed, Matthew uses the very same plain word for crowds in both occasions, and we've seen it even politically in the last several well, years and election cycles. As the news travels fast. People's sentiment changes drastically. People can be swayed and deceived or changed on a dime. Well, here they are at Jesus' feet. Let's look at Matthew 27, verse 39. Where are the crowds? Well, they're gone. And the few that pass by, they don't sing his praises. Here's what they say instead. Look at Matthew twenty-seven thirty-nine. And those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. We follow the crowds throughout the Passion Week. At the beginning here on Sunday, they are praising him. Save us. And now they turn on him. They join the mocking and condemn him. When he was before, brought before Pilate, And then before the crowds, and the governor asks the crowds, what do you want me to do with Jesus, your king, the one called Christ? And Matthew uses the term, the crowds. The crowds cry out, let him be crucified. Kill him. How can they turn so drastically? What explains such betrayal and such a reversal, such a change in allegiance what changed on Sunday? What did they see on Sunday? They saw their king coming to town, who, Hosanna, he's going to save us. What do they see on Friday morning? They see their hope in chains, captured by the ones he thought they thought he was going to conquer, and they see him condemned to death. They don't see Jesus as a savior anymore. They see him as a sinking ship, and they're not going to go down with him. They see one who is bruised, beaten, in chains, paraded before them in the hands of the Romans. What are they realizing on Friday? According to their expectations, the jig is up. It was fun while it lasted. Boy, it seemed like this Jesus guy was really something. It was a fun ride, but it's over. The Romans won. Look at him. He can't be the Messiah after all, he lost. And then that great irony of words, he couldn't save himself, how could he ever save us? Their faith is fickle. They don't really trust Jesus, his plans, or his ways. They would trust him as long as things were going well, as long as he kept up to speed with their expectations, as long as he fulfilled their dreams or kept what they wanted. They just can't trust him to do it any other way. And that's not really trust, is it? So what do they see? A failed savior, another failed politician, a failed revolutionary, no savior at all. And so as we go into this week of the Passion Week, Jesus, in a sense, does come for war. He comes bringing peace, but He comes war against the self-righteous. He comes war against the establishment of the Jewish religion. He comes war against those who think they have some merit before God. And this comes as a reminder, maybe your faith is not so hot after all. It comes as a reminder, don't let your faith be so surface level and fickle. Again, they cry out, save yourself. Isn't that ironic? Save yourself and come down from the cross. Of course, what's the great irony there? If he comes off on the cross, what happens? You're right, then he is no savior. He is no deliverer. Because the cross was the very way he came to save. The one you didn't expect. Admittedly, it didn't look like he was winning, as he was standing there in chains, or he's hanging on the cross, being suffering, as he was suffering and being beaten. But so it was. That was God's very design. That through the greatest injustice, through the greatest suffering and pain, that's how God worked a salvation that is eternal, it's effective, and it's permanent for all that trust in Him, for all that see the cross is not losing. But that's winning. That his suffering meant life for us. That his resurrection's going to come after that darkest day. That's why we call it Good Friday, isn't it? Why? Because there and then our salvation was won. And that was God's very design. To win in a way you didn't expect. He won by dying. He saved by losing his life. He delivered by being delivered over to death. And that was clear by su- the next Sunday. But that Friday, right in the midst of it, not even His disciples could see that. And is that because those disciples never believed yet? No, I don't think that was it. They trusted Christ. We, we've heard Jesus affirm Peter's own profession of faith. They trusted Christ, even if they didn't understand everything about His mission in Him. But certainly, the troubles they were under, the dashed hopes and the unmet expectations as they saw taking place by Friday... His capture and betrayal, see with Peter in particular, you see it. Their faith wavered, waffled, and for some of them, it crumbled. But Christ doesn't leave him there. He comes back to Peter and restores him three times, one for each denial. Or take doubting Thomas, who also abandons Jesus. Thomas couldn't even fathom the thought. To even get his false hopes up again that Jesus really rose from the dead. What did he say? I'm not going to believe unless I can put my finger in his wounds and Jesus obliges. He will not leave Him there. And doubting Thomas becomes worshiping Thomas, calling Jesus His God and Lord. But all this shows what? No matter how great our God and how true and glorious His promises, how unmovable and unshakable they are, our faith is fickle, prone to wander. Do you feel it? Especially in the face of difficulty. And this text reminds us it humbles our pride and our confidence in us, and that just casts us all the more on Christ. In other words, if our faith has been rattled, it's not because His word was rattled or changed or cracked or weakened or compromised. The problem is not with Him and His promises, is it? Where is it? It's right in here. It's with us. Well, in view of that, what are we to do? How are we to hold fast? How are we to build up the faith when we're struggling, when, it, when our faith feels like cracking, when the troubles come, and we just work this text backwards and these commands we have, example, in this text. First off, when doubts arise, realize the problem lies not with God, but with you. His Word is no less true than it was before you started doubting it. It's still true. So what's changed then? It wasn't His Word. It wasn't the truth you have. And so this is a call for us all to be vigilant, that we have to fight for faith and belief in the heart of one another and our own soul. That means you must pray. You must help brothers and sisters be in the word. You must put off sin. That's why Jesus tells them in the garden, keep watch lest you enter into doubt and temptation. That's first. Second, you're weak and stumbling. You're like water. You got to go back to what is sure. And what's the thing that is sure? It is the unchanging word of God. That's where we build ourselves, God's perfect Word. His Word is truth, not your heart, not your feelings, not your circumstances. They don't reveal all that God's doing. His Word does. His good Word does. Rely on it. It's true. He and His promises will never fail you. And third, got to cry out to Him. You have to depend upon Him. And if, you've, if you're going to tell me, but Rick, I've tried that. The example we have of the blind man is what? You just got to keep crying out. You got to keep depending. There's nowhere else to go. Don't give up. Don't let go of God until he blesses you, like Jacob wrestling with him. And that's what faith looks like. We depend on God. We see it in the Psalms over and over. Because what does that say? What does that show? But that we are needy and we have nowhere else to go but to the one answer, and it's him. Let's cry out to him now depending on our King. Let's pray together. Indeed, O God, we call upon You, the risen Christ. What an example of triumph You are in the glory of the gospel, that You were dead, You were in the tomb, and yet, according to Your Word, even that You've already predicted, we've seen it in the gospels, You raised from the dead on the third day because You paid the price. It was finished. Sin had been paid for all that trust in You and you have risen to forever intercede and fulfill all the promises of God. Oh, that we would be shown mercy in that. We we thank you. We confess, though, we confess that we are weak in faith. I think we cry out together to say, Lord Jesus, we believe, but help our unbelief. Help us walk in your truth. Help us be governed, tenaciously devoted, and commanded by your word in truth and in obedience. May we in that way be a people indeed that are beholden to you, that we are ready to do your will, that we are those that look for a hope beyond this place where you will come back and we will see you face to face. Work that for the glory and the worth of the gospel that has bought us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.